0: morning we'll be looking at a very familiar passage of scripture, which I suspect that if you grew up in the church, that as a child you heard this story many times and perhaps sang a song of the wee little man, and uh, that, that being said, you know how it is, having heard something all your life long, you may become desensitized to it. And really, this is a stunning episode in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, rather unique uh, for details, we'll talk about it in a moment, uh, from other, uh, pretty much every other encounter, at least that comes to mind, uh, that Jesus had with individuals. So today, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Let's read this passage together. Hear the word of the Lord. He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they, that is the crowd, saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today's salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Father, as we come into this portion of your word, I pray, Father, that it would speak to every single one of us powerfully, compellingly, irresistibly of the stunning love of Jesus, your Son. And Lord, sometimes uh, we, we tend to think that it is your threats and the fear of your fierce anger against sin that turns us to you and puts us in the narrow way. But it's your goodness that leads us to repentance. It's your kindness. It's your love that changes our hearts. It's the good news of the gospel. As we sang just a moment ago, it's your goodness that is like a fetter binding our wandering hearts to you. And so, Father, I pray that by your spirit in all his power, you would bind our hearts to you and you would convince us again of your stunning love for us in Jesus, your Son. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Last, uh, last week, well, actually, over these last few weeks, we have been looking at this mini-unit within a larger portion of Luke's narrative. We were looking at Luke 18, verse 1, and now we're wrapping this unit up with uh, chapter 19, verse 10. And you may recall that earlier in this passage, Jesus, having had this encounter with the rich young man, said that it is easier for a 2,000-pound camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. And the listeners who were on hand were shocked, and they pressed Jesus about this. They said, who then can be saved? And you remember Jesus' answer. He said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then, thank God for that answer. And thank God also that we have seen this answer worked out. As, as evidence, as proof in these encounters with the next two individuals that followed, First of all, uh, blind Bartimaeus, whose name I didn't mention last week. Mark is the one who actually tells us what the blind man's name was. And now this week as well, we see it in Zacchaeus. We see w- what Jesus is doing is not only making the impossible possible, he is making the impossible actual actual reality as he takes these two individuals and brings them by the mercy and power of God into the kingdom. These two encounters, the last week was beginning with 1835 and that took us through the end of the chapter. But these two encounters are, I think, very different and yet ironically parallel and in the end, I think that they are also um, wonderfully complementary. Let me explain that. First of all, they're very different because these two individuals, Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus, are on opposite ends of the ec- economic spectrum. Bartimaeus, who is a beggar, and Zacchaeus, who is a tax collector, whose career choice has proved to be very lucrative. And then, second. These two things, these two encounters are also ironically parallel because neither one of these men is able to see Jesus how they want to see Jesus. Bartimaeus because he's blind and Zacchaeus just because he is too stinking short. Also, what is uh, parallel is that at the start, I mean, the crowd is quite happy that neither one of these individuals is able to see Jesus. Although one thing, we're not going to take time to comment on this, is, is how it changes. After Bartimaeus has received the favor of Jesus, the crowd is happy, but not Zacchaeus. After he is shown favor by the Lord, the crowd is quite upset. And then these two encounters are also, so they are very different. They're um ironically parallel and third they're they're wonderfully complementary because though they come from opposite ends of this economic spectrum Jesus does succeed to bring both of them into the kingdom and their lives immediately bear the fruit of belonging to him and as i was saying a moment ago this is a wonderful episode in the life of Christ. And I know it's something that we're, uh, very used to hearing from, from Sunday school and childhood days because there's, uh, you know, there's a good bit of humor injected into this incident just because of the whole setting, Zacchaeus, like who he is, what his issue is, and how he scrambles up the tree and all of that. And it's, uh, it's relatable too in, in that sense. It feels, uh, personable, I suppose you could say. But, I want you to listen. I want you to note something. Although there is humor in this incident, it's not for humor. That's not why it was written. It's not why it's included in the narrative. And although the story is relatable, it's not simply for a good story. What is this? It is revelation. Revelation of who Jesus is. That He is a Savior whose heart is full of mercy, even for me. And it's also revelation of why he has come, to seek and to save the lost, even me. Right? That's what this is about. So let's take note again of verse 1. It says, he entered Jericho and he was passing through. We've been talking about the context, and I want to jot down one more contextual note before we continue any further. We have been in Luke, um, Brenda told me the other day, and she's not here right now to, to remind me. We've been in Luke for some time, but since chapter 9, verse 51, we've been in this, what we could call the journey narrative portion of Luke's gospel. Back in chapter 9, verse 51, it said that, As the days drew near for him to be taken up, he turned his face to go to Jerusalem. And that's when he began the journey. And over these several chapters, 10 to 18, we haven't known where Jesus is very often. I mean, exactly where he is. All we know is that he's going to Jerusalem. I mean, he could be crisscrossing the country still back and forth and up and down, but He's headed to Jerusalem. That's his purpose. His face is set toward that city where he will accomplish our redemption. But we haven't known exactly where he is until now. Notice this. Back in chapter 18, verse 35, what did it say? As he drew near to Jericho. And now in chapter 19, verse 1, the second encounter that we've been talking about. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Now Luke is getting very exact, and Luke is getting specific. And Jesus in these moments is about the same distance from Jerusalem as we are from West Monroe. But as he draws near to destination Jerusalem, where he will accomplish the redemption of his people, Luke is getting exact, and Luke is getting specific. And I think that the effect is, when you notice these things, and when you think about them, the effect is a sense of foreboding trembling, there's a heaviness here because we know, we can feel what is shortly about to happen that all these people, all of them the crowds, the disciples too all will turn away from Christ but by the shedding of his blood he will bring all kinds back from the blind beggar to the rich tax collector, from those who feel like they have nothing at all going for them to those who strongly sense that they have way too much against them. He will bring all kinds back. Not everyone is going to come back. Not everyone will receive the benefits of His atonement. But this is who will. This is who will. All who perceive with the eyes of their hearts The stunning love of Jesus. All who can see the glory of His goodness and the glory of His love. And so as we look at this encounter with Zacchaeus, that's what I want for each and every one of you. That's my prayer, is that with the eyes of your heart, you will perceive the stunning love of Jesus even for you. Because all who see it, come to him, all who see it come. So that's specifically what we're going to look at. And I want you to notice three things in the stunning love of Jesus. I want you to see, first of all, that by his stunning love, he summons you. By his stunning love, he changes you. And third, by his stunning love, he includes you. I think we see all three of these things in Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. Let's continue on, verses 2 to 3. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. Zacchaeus is actually the second tax collector that Luke names in his account, you'll remember the first one from back in chapter 5 was Levi, whom we better know as Matthew, the author of the, the first gospel in the New Testament. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. We've spent a lot of time going over why these men were despised, but I just want you to feel it again. They were despised because they were traitors to their nation and because they were thieves. That is, they chose, when career day came around, to go to the tax collector's table when everybody else was going to the various other trades. That's how we could think of it, I suppose. They decided that they were going to consort with Rome. They were going to line Rome's coffers and line their own pockets at the expense of their neighbors and their nation. They were traitors and they were thieves, and that's why they are hated. By everyone, by the rich, by the poor, religious, irreligious, they hate the tax collector because of who they are, what they become, and what they do to their own people. So Zacchaeus, he's a chief tax collector. That means this man is especially hated. He's not doing well socially, but the broad road that leads to destruction has proven to be quite lucrative for him personally. Now, he knows about Jesus. Everybody does. The, the high and the low all know about Christ. They have heard these reports of um, the stunning displays of His glory. They've heard the reports of His astonishing teaching and astonishing power. Now, he's looking to see Jesus for the first time. Obviously, he has not yet been an eyewitness at all to the ministry of Christ. So he wants to put a face to the name. But, of course, he can't. Because he's short. He showed up late for the parade or something, but he gets stuck behind the crowd. I don't know if this man... You can't read too much into this, um, into, into the action that he takes here. So I don't know if he has just like this excitable personality, that he's kind of a kid at heart, doesn't care about appearances, formality, Remaining dignified, of course, tax collectors would, I think, probably give up trying to keep up appearances because everybody hated them anyway. But, um, I don't know if he's like that or not. I just know all he wants, you know, all he wants is to see Jesus. But I did, I did think of, uh, little Mike Kazarian as I was, uh, thinking through this text. And, um, a lot of you, uh, new Mike and, and Mike passed away, uh, a couple years ago, this past September. But, uh, Mike was just, you know, he, we call him Little Mike. If I, if I get called Big Mike, then there has to be another Mike who's really, sh- he was, you know, a real short guy, just real thin. And, uh, man, we loved him. I mean, he was just such a lovable man, so generous, uh, very excitable and childlike. I remember this time that um, Bill and Mike and I, and I, I may have told you this story before, uh, we are headed to, to West Monroe to eat some breakfast, going to Grandy's. And we were in Bill's old big blue van, and I was driving. Bill was always ready to give up the driver's seat, all that trucking he had done. He just didn't like to drive. Anyway, I was in the driver's seat, and he gave up the passenger seat to, to Mike. That's what Bill did. You know, ready to give the best seat to anybody. Uh, and he sat in the back. So I had Mike on my right and Bill directly behind him. And these two elderly gentlemen and good friends just love to talk. They love to talk to anybody. And they love to talk to each other. But neither one of them could hear very well. Especially, you know, you know when they're sitting in that, the van, those big seats, and they're directly in front and behind each other. So this is what Mike does. Mike never wore a seatbelt. said it was his pacemaker. Bothered him. Of course, riding shotgun, you know, wouldn't have been an issue. But anyway, he doesn't wear a seat belt. Probably never did a day in his life. And and just being a kid and not caring about appearances, he turns completely, his whole body, he turns completely around. He gets up on the seat on his knees and he's peering over the headrest to Bill. And they're just carrying on this conversation the whole way to West Monroe. And I look over at at this. Mike is like 82 83 at the time. Like he's such a kid, you know, and I'm just smiling ear to ear. I, it was funny and Bill and I shared that memory uh a lot after it happened. But this is this kind of feels like Zacchaeus to me because Mike would have been that guy. He would have been stuck behind the crowd, not able to see, you know, trying to see Jesus, but he definitely wouldn't have cared to And he was agile enough too. I have no doubt he could have done it. You know, scramble up the sycamore tree and hang on over the street. So that's Zacchaeus in this very memorable encounter. Look at verse 4 now. It says, So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he, Jesus, was about to pass that way. So he may be short, but he's agile enough to get up the tree. And here we have this famous scene. Uh, We just imagine, don't know how it was exactly, maybe he was perched rather easily, but I imagine him hanging on for dear life to the best seat in the house, which happens to be hanging there over the street. And all he wants to do, it seems, is put a face to the name. Put a face, get a visual that will go with all that he has heard, but he gets a lot more this day than what he asked for and it's to the salvation of his soul so let's look at verse five and when Jesus came to the place he looked up and said to him Zacchaeus hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today I can't think of another encounter that is quite like this Because the way that it usually goes is Jesus either just shows up to the house or people have invited him into the house or they've been calling him to come and to follow them so that they can or their loved one can receive the the, the benefits of Jesus' miraculous power of his ministry. But that's not how this one works. Instead, Jesus simply orders him. He commands him. I mean, he could have showed up at his house in a, a less maybe blunt or direct or public manner, but instead publicly he summons him down and tells him he's coming to the house. He doesn't wait for any kind of agreement. He doesn't ask if he can come. He's just saying, this is what's going to happen here. You almost wait for Jesus to say, and this is what we're going to have for supper. But, I mean, it doesn't go that far. I want you to see a parallel into your own spiritual life. Because this is the way that it works. It is true that there is a general invitation to all people to come to Jesus. Every person without exception. There is the invitation that goes out. We call it the, in theology the general call. But then you have what we call the effectual call. So the Bible says, many are called, but few are chosen. And it also says that we who believe are the called. It's part of our identity now. That, so you can tell just by that, that phrasing that there is something different. We're the called. And what happens is, is that when Jesus issues this call to salvation, it falls down upon your heart like thunder. It's a summons. You feel the force of Christ's command to come. This is what Zacchaeus receives on this day. This summons to Jesus. And this is what all who believe receive. So this morning, first of all, I want you to know that he feels no different for you than he did for Zacchaeus. This is what Jesus has said to you. Very similar. He has has said to you, come here to me because I am coming to you. Come here to me because I am coming to you. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, I am coming to you. I know your guilt. I know your guilt better than you know your guilt. But I will bear that guilt So you come to me because I am coming to you. That's the parallel to our own lives. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. So it says, he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. The crowd, though, has the opposite response. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. You put these two paragraphs together. We got the unfortunate chapter break in between, so it's easy to miss that they're together. But you put 1835 to 43 and 191 to 10 together, and you're thinking, you know what? This is very likely the same crowd that was there to see the healing of Bartimaeus. How did, how did they respond, first of all, when Bartimaeus was calling out to Jesus? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me! They, they grumbled, they complained, they told him, shut up. Be quiet! It says they rebuked him. They were strong. They were forceful. Keep your mouth shut. He's too busy. He's going to Jerusalem. They're going to crown him, whatever. And then, when the man is favored, and when Jesus commands that he's brought to him and heals him, it says all the people glorified God. So they're happy. I mean, they're they're grumbling, they're they're uh, angry, and then they're happy. Is this the same crowd now that is grumbling again? It wouldn't surprise me. And that specific word, grumbling, who does that remind you of in the Bible? Old Testament Israel? The the redemption generation that was brought out of slavery in Egypt? I mean, think of this. They're at the Red Sea. They've been brought out of Egypt by the power of God. They're hemmed in at the Red Sea by the sea itself, by desert wasteland and by the Egyptians hot on their heels. And they cry out to God. They're, they're upset and they say, it would have been better to have died in Egypt rather than be slaughtered out here in the wilderness. Moses says, watch the power of God. The Red Sea splits. They go through on dry land. On the other side, they're as happy as can be. They're dancing. They're singing praises to God. Three days later, they don't have water that they believe God owes them. And they're grumbling all over again. Grumbling, happy, grumbling. Seems to be the very same with this crowd. Grumbling, happy, grumbling all over again. And I think we are looking into a mirror. Because as dumb as this is, this is, this is me. I can be joyful in the Lord after a sweet hour with Him. And turn around before the hour is out and be sour with my kids because they're bringing me down or taking the wind out of my sails or or whatever. We need to be saved from ourselves. Don't we? The first thing is to know it. We need to be saved from ourselves. The second thing is to believe with all of our hearts Jesus will do it. Jesus will save us from us. There's more involved than that, what he saves us from, but certainly we need to be saved from ourselves. Let's look at verse eight now. So first of all, uh, we, we see, you know, the, the stunning love of Jesus in his summons. Come down, because I'm coming to you. I must. There's the summons. And then we see here the stunning love that changes us. Verse eight, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Just real quick, I wasn't planning on saying this, but I thought of it earlier this morning. It says Zacchaeus stood. Zacchaeus, who is small in stature, now stands and he says, and I think Luke's insertion of that wording is deliberate. Now in Jesus, he stands a little bit taller, doesn't he? So he stands and he says to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. I've already read it. And those I've defrauded I restore fourfold. Isn't this how we know that this man repented? His life was changed. The living tree bears fruit. The living tree produces Where there is the living root, there's going to be the fruit. Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the root. Good works is the fruit of that. But let's be sure that we keep one as the requirement to be justified and the other the result of being justified. And even though justification and sanctification are two strands that intertwine, we have to distinguish them one from the other. Faith and faith alone is what justifies. We are declared righteous. But that faith is worked out in love and that's sanctification. In one we're declared righteous and in the other we become increasingly, practically righteous. Justification and sanctification. So we're seeing this in Zacchaeus. We're seeing the evidence of his repentance in this changed life. Do you see it in your own life? Do others see it in your life? Do they see the fruit of regeneration? The fruit of repentance and the fruit of faith in Jesus? One thing to notice is that each of these men in these encounters gives what they have to give. Bartimaeus didn't have any money to give. He was a beggar. But he gives what he has. Remember? As soon as he was healed, Jesus said, your faith has made you well, meaning your faith has saved you is actually what it literally means. And it says, immediately he followed him and he glorified God. That's what he had to give and he gave it. And Zacchaeus does the same thing. This man before had, had worshiped the wealth that he had accumulated. Now that Jesus has intervened in his life, what he has to give, he gives to his new Lord. Money had been his Lord before. He himself had been his own Lord before. Now Jesus is Lord and he worships Jesus, not his wealth. And so what he has to give, he gives to the Lord. Think about that. Half of his goods to the poor. And Jesus does not say, you need to do this specifically. But Zacchaeus says, this is what I'm going to do. If I have defrauded anyone, what I have defrauded, I'm going to return fourfold. His life has changed. This is what Jesus does. And this is what the stunning love of Jesus does. Does anyone here want to be left the same? Does anyone here want to be left as they are? Does anyone just want to go their own way and do their own thing, follow their own agenda? The old road, it might be broad and comfortable in that sense, but it leads to destruction. We felt free, perhaps, but we were enslaved to the passions of our idolatrous hearts. Jesus frees us. He frees us. In binding us to Himself, we are free. It's the only captivity in the world in which there is actually true freedom. This is what Jesus does. It's his love that does this. The stunning love of Jesus summons us and changes us. Let's look at verse nine. Third, we're going to see the loving the love of Jesus includes us. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Um, Notice what he says now, how it corresponds to what he first said to Zacchaeus. In very Parallel language. What did he first say? He said, I must stay at your house today. And now he says, today salvation has come to this house. So when Jesus came, salvation came. Because only in Jesus do we find our salvation. Think of elderly Simeon. Back in the beginning of this book, chapter 2. Elderly Simeon Simeon going to the temple, led by the Holy Spirit, meeting the couple, Joseph and Mary, with little infant, six-week-old Jesus. Simeon takes up Jesus in his arms, and he lifts him up, and he praises God, and what does he say? My eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus is salvation. And as Peter preached on the other side of Christ's resurrection, there is salvation in no other name. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house, for he also is a son of Abraham. I hope that you can feel the force of that statement. Who... um, who doesn't look very Jewish in this whole thing? Zacchaeus, right? He's the chief tax collector. He has betrayed his country. All the loyal Jews who made up the bulk of the country would have called this man's Jewishness into question. He is automatically out on the outs with everybody. He is on the periphery of society. Everybody shuns him. Nobody likes him. They're like, you think you're a Jew? You're not a Jew. You're conspiring with our captors. You're weakening your own people and strengthening our captors, Zacchaeus. They hate this man. Now Jesus, very publicly, this is the reason for the public summons in the first place, let everybody know that Jesus has mercy for sinners. And here he makes it publicly known, this man also is a son of Abraham. He includes him. Because this is what the stunning love of Jesus does. It includes the excluded. We have seen this. And I wanted you to get this so bad. And if you need to go back and survey Luke's gospel between this Sunday and next, do it. Because nobody is so deliberate as Luke is to put into his narrative all of these cases of people who are shunned. People who are hated and despised. Think of like the Good Samaritan story. That's unique to Luke. The the parable of the prodigal son. That's unique to Luke. Because Luke wants... And that's why he includes women all through his narrative. Because in that day, they were devalued. They were counted to be less than the men. So Luke is constantly inserting them. And those who think that the Bible looks down on women are so mistaken because in that day, that's how society looked at women as less valuable. Valuable. So Luke sprinkles them all through the narrative. In fact, he often includes things, I'm going off on a tangent, I wasn't planning to, to go on, but he often includes people in a story in pairs. Um, like here you'll have a man and then you'll have another encounter with an individual, but often it's man, woman, man, woman. And that's how Luke is very literary and deliberate and things that we just miss while we're reading through the text. But anyway, because this is what Jesus does. He brings in the shunned, the maligned, the poor, the excluded, the hated, the the people that nobody else wants, Jesus brings them in. The stunning love of Jesus includes sinners. Now what, if anything, does this son of Abraham talk have to do with you if you are, like me, a full-blooded Gentile? One person in our congregation has told me that they have some Jewish blood in their ancestry. I don't know if there very well could be others, and we just don't know it. Um, but um, for, for the full-blooded Gentile, what does this have to do with us? You know, don't you, that you have to be included. You have to be in with Abraham if you're going to have the blessing of God. Because this is how God first began to set apart a people to Himself. He went to this pagan, idol-worshipping man by the name of Abram. And He called him out and He said, I want you to go to this land. He didn't know where He was going, but He went. And he and God promised him three things as a covenant. He promised him a nation. He promised him... Uh, a land and he promised him blessing. And these are the covenant promises to the people of God and if you're not in you're not in with God. So what about the full blooded gentile? As I am. Well there were a lot of them that Paul wrote to in the New Testament who felt they felt second class in God's kingdom. Many Jews of that day made them feel second class, but Paul said no. You are a full-fledged member. You're in. You're included. Listen to the words of Ephesians chapter 2. He's writing to Gentiles, and he says that before Jesus found us, we were separated from him, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. There's two strikes. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Strike three. Having no hope for and without God in the world. uh, Strike five, and you're out. But now in Christ Jesus... You, who were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We need to be in Abraham's spiritual bloodline. And how? By the blood of Christ, by grace, Through faith. So Paul wrote to the Galatians. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And I have some other scripture here too, Romans 4, but I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. And I I know that's a big thing, that's a doctrinal thing, feels like a technical thing, technical point of theology. And I probably need to do a series sometime, sometime soon going through the covenants. I want you to know this. I want you to know these dimensions and these angles, these facets of the love of God for you. And what it means to be included in the covenant promises. This is our salvation. But this is the stunning love of Jesus. Even for the filthy and the vile that everyone in one sense justly turns against. The one who is all for himself, who makes himself rich even at the expense of the poor. Jesus has loved and Jesus has shown mercy to. For It says in verse 10, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Do you feel, I always ask you, but I'll ask you again, do you feel in your heart and in your conscience that sense of utter lostness, hopelessness without Jesus? Without Him? Do you feel your need for Christ? Remember what we were talking about last week. Know your need. If you're going to come to Jesus, you must know your need. But don't let your need keep you from coming. Come to Christ again. Let's come to Him in faith and be grateful for this stunning, and unspeakable love. Let's pray. Father, you have given to us in Jesus, your Son, all that we could ever need for our salvation. Thank you for his coming, for his seeking after us. Thank you, Father, that though we didn't even know how bad our condition was and how lost we were, yet he found us. And He brought us back to Himself. And I pray, Father, that this would be the case for each one here, that each one here would be found. So I pray, Lord, that they would feel, all of us would feel our need and call out to Jesus and Jesus alone because there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. It's Christ. And I pray, Father, that Jesus would be exalted in every heart. I, I pray, Father, that we would, we would sense, even as we sense our need, I pray that we would sense his awesomeness. And we would glory in Christ and boast in Christ freely. Thank you for the love that has changed everything for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.